I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Diane Pewson likes to say that the sports calendar dictated the rhythm of her life. Newspaper assignments took her all over the world for nearly four decades. She was here, there, and everywhere, writing, 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 writing. More than 300 stories in some years. Diane was always in the thick of things as a columnist in Los Angeles and Philadelphia. And in the 1970s, she was one of the courageous reporters on the front lines of breaking barriers for women in sports journalism. Wait until you hear what baseball caveman Jim Fricosi once said to her. Diane witnessed and wrote about crazy moments too. The Bob Knight chair game, Nancy and Tanya. She'll tell us about being there in the storm and about her love for covering the Olympics and the sport of tennis. And Pewson shares her harrowing experience in New York City on 9-11. It's one of the most emotional stories we've heard on this podcast. Without further ado, let the adventure begin. Hey, Diane, it's very nice to have you join us on Press Box Access. Great to be here. It's so good to catch up. It's been too long, too long. Been quite a while, yes. You know, it's funny. You spent nearly 40 years as a sports writer at several newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times and Philadelphia Inquirer. You traveled the world, 10 Wimbledon, 7 Olympics, Tour de France, and now you're retired and living in my hometown of Newport, Kentucky, across the river from Cincinnati. (laughs) How did that happen? I'm not even sure. I don't know. I don't know. I do know this. Your husband, Dan Weber, who has enjoyed his own successful career as a sports writer, was my very first sports editor in 1987 at the Kentucky Post. (laughs) Well, everywhere we go, that's why we're back here. And I swear to God, everywhere we go, the first thing I hear is, Danny Weber? Is this Danny Weber? (laughs) He's like the mayor. (laughs) He is. He's, you know, the oldest of eight. There are Webers everywhere around here, and I think we've met them all. Well, Dan helped my career get off to a great start. He sent me out to the Northern Kentucky Swimming and Diving Championships once. I uh, was a young intern, and I was buttering up the uh, parents who were the judges, and they sent a photographer out named Joe Munson, and Munson came over. I know Joe. And Munson came over silently watched the kids dive for like three minutes and then said loud enough for the parents to hear, hell, my dog can dive better than these kids. <laughs> well, okay, here's here's Dan's Joe Munson story. All right, here we go, Munson he took, stories. <laughs> he, took, he took Joe to the Indy 500. There was some Northern Kentucky con- connection. So they went to Indy and they find a place. Dan said, I've been told to... I think it was the second turn, I forget. Stand here, we'll get, this is where you should shoot. Joe has no clue about anything. And all of a sudden, Dan looks and he sees Paul Newman standing like 10 feet away in his white suit. And he he nudges Joe and he nudges Joe and he's kind of telling Joe, look, look. Finally, Joe looks and Joe looks and goes up to Paul and said, Oh, my God, it's Steve McQueen. (laughs) And Paul Newman burst out laughing and said, I don't think that's ever happened before. And Paul says to him, no, I'm not Steve. I'm the one who's still alive. (laughs) 
So there the ends, Jim, onto the story. Well, this has somehow turned into the Joe Munson show. I apologize. You're the guest here. Enough about Munson and enough about me, that's for sure. But, but hey, let's stay in Cincinnati because we got a lot of ground to cover with your great career. And let's stay there in Cincinnati because I've got in front of me a Cincinnati Magazine article from 1978. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. And the headline is Liberating the Locker Room. (laughs) And in all seriousness, I want to ask you about, you know, you were on the front lines for female sports writers, for women to break the barriers that they faced starting, you know, in the mid to late 70s and and on. Um, And this article, the the subheadline is Cincinnati City Solicitor Thomas Luber says, at this point, the city is not about to stop the Reds and Bengals from discriminating against women reporters. <laughs> it's funny because back then, I didn't think of myself. I don't know. It, I had never set out, first of all, to be a sports writer because I interned at my local Waukegan, Illinois, New Sun, all the years I was in college, in summers and Christmases. And they would rotate us interns through every department. But I never went to sports because the sports editor there said, over my dead body, will there be a woman writing in sports? Damn. So I just didn't, it, it didn't occur to me to, to be a sports writer. Even though I loved sports, I had been going to sporting, to high school basketball games with my dad from the time I was, you know, could go. It wasn't something I thought of becoming because there weren't any exactly role models at that point. Mm -hmm. But after I graduated from Marquette, I was working as a waitress in the one nice restaurant in Waukegan. And the bartender who had graduated from Missouri, also in journalism, would bring editor and publisher in every Monday. And we'd go through the back pages. They'd have uh, good old days, hundreds of uh, help wanted ads for journalism jobs. Mm-hmm. And one of them happened to be, it said it was for a sports writer in Columbus, Georgia, which I had never heard of, but it said it would accept recent college graduates. You didn't have to have experience. So I applied and then had to look on the map to see where Columbus, Georgia was. But <laughs> it was the second biggest city in Georgia, far, you know, unbeknownst to me. And I took the job and it was for $167 a week wow. was the, the grand salary at that time. So you were like an accidental sports writer. I was an accidental sports writer. Wow. And it was the best accident ever. Wow. Because in Columbus, at that, they covered, it was a Knight Ritter paper. It was, a, you know, a bigger paper than I expected almost. And they covered Auburn, Alabama, Georgia, and Georgia Tech football. Home and away. They, nice. I mean, they covered the heck So out they of, threw you right into the fire. So they threw me right into the fire. I did, one of the first games I did was Notre Dame at Georgia Tech. I'm standing outside. That was my first experience standing outside the locker room and Notre Dame did not allow women into the locker room. But they would let the men in. And so the Notre Dame SID, you know, in a good move said, I won't let anybody in if you insist on going in. But if you don't insist, I'll bring people out. Well, the guys, you know, did not stand for me. They yeah, were like put that looking on you, at me like, like that was supposed to be up to you. Yeah. Oh. And I, you know, I didn't have the nerve to say, 
no. So they all went in and I stood out there for about an hour and a half and got like two horrible quotes and realized, okay, this is not as easy as it's going to appear to be. But that's how it was. Yeah. So when you moved to Cincinnati, like I said, I bring up this this article and it's like basically the city's like, oh, we're not going to stop from discriminating against women. You were no. you were around, you know, the Reds and Bengals somewhat. Um, yeah. What was it like in 1978 to try to cover an NFL or a Major League Baseball game if you were a woman? Well, it was both. It was that the only good part probably at that time was the Post was an afternoon paper. So I did have the benefit of a lot of lead time. The deadline situation was such that I could afford to wait outside locker rooms and try to get people, you know, I didn't have to at least file a story within 10 minutes or something. So that was probably the only good part of working for an afternoon paper. But I wasn't like the rubble kind. I wasn't, you know, women's lib. It, that wasn't me. I grew up pretty conservative and I I just didn't think about, you know, storming the gates of locker rooms kind of thing. So I would just try to do whatever I could to to talk. To, and, and I think it actually ended up serving me well because I would try to find different people to talk to. Any You know, anybody who came out of that locker room, like I'd talk to. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it worked out to my advantage, actually. But you talked about waiting outside the locker room. I mean... Wasn't there a time where you had to like wait for Franco Harris or something for a long time? I think there was like an incident. Like I waited for Franco Harris forever. I waited one time. I it was a uh, Reds when I was in Columbus. Actually, it was I was waiting outside the Braves locker room and Dale Murphy, who was a very very much a religious, and he when he he wouldn't even talk to. So I waited and waited and waited for him specifically, and he walked out. And said, "I'm not talking to any woman who wants to even even wants to come in our locker room because that's the unchristian. That's so unchristian and against my beliefs." And what did you say to him? Again, I I you know I said thank you for your time. I I mean I you know I was not the one that was going to sue people or bust in. And at that time in Cincinnati, I didn't. There were the sports editors weren't exactly breaking down the door. They didn't want to you know storm the gates. In my on my behalf, in fact, Earl Lawson, who had covered the Reds forever, mm-hmm. and, and he was a wonderful, he was wonderful to me. He was great, but he retired when I was there, so the beat opened up for the first time in you know forever. Mm-hmm. And they asked us, you know, anybody who was interested to let them know. So I did. I thinking I really not that I was dying to cover baseball. That was not my thing, but I thought I need to do this. And was told by the sports editor, we can't have you, you know, we're not going to rock the boat, basically, and demand that the Reds let you in and, and cover it. So, it, you know, no, you won't, you will not be covering the Reds, but mm-hmm. thank you very much for your interest. Right. Kind of thing. So. Wow. Well, this is not an issue that changed overnight by any means. It took a long time. Yeah. How did it change and when did it start to change? It was a gradual thing. It, so it, it did become much to the dismay of many male reporters, a lot of, I was doing a whole, a lot more college uh, coverage. I ended up doing Xavier basketball and Miami University football while I was at the Post. And they, you know, and this isn't a good thing, but they decided, okay, we're not going to let anybody in the locker room and you're all going to have to mm. wait outside, which wasn't great, but that was the solution. And you just learn to deal with it, kind of. So that was happening more and more. Um, 
some sports were better. Pro basketball and pro football seemed more amenable to having women in. And I attribute that a little bit to those to those guys had all mostly at least spent some time in college. Mm-hmm. Where baseball, a lot of those guys had never gone to college and were less open to some of those, you know. Have, my worst experiences in locker rooms were all baseball related. Yeah, it was a very, very insular environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the writers sometimes were as bad as the players. You know, when I think about the early start of your career and what you had to deal with, it seems crazy now. Um, but you were also there for some crazy moments in sports. Yep. And I want you to take us with you to February 23rd, 1985. That's one thing about being a sports writer. There are certain dates that you know exactly where you were. You tell us where you were on February 23rd, 1985. I believe that would be Bloomington, Indiana. And one of the good things back then was we got seats right on the court. Our press seats were not up in the, you know, the nether regions of the stadiums like they are most of the time now. So we were, we were right on the court, the beat writers anyway. Right. And it was um, IU-Purdue game. And and you were there for the, was, uh, the Louisville Courier-Journal, correct? Yes, I was there for Louisville. IU was my beat for the Courier-Journal. Okay. So, again, we did all the home and away games. It was pretty much a big deal. So I'm there. Bobby was not ever thrilled about having a woman there. And he would use me to pimp writers. Sometimes I would ask a question in the post game, and he would stop the press conference and say things like, See, it takes a woman to ask a good question I'm willing to answer. Mm. So he was both pimping me and the other writers. The but record, that was we're talking about Bobby Knight. <laughs> Knight, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't need a last name. So this this particular wow. game wasn't going well. It was Purdue, and it was a wild atmosphere anyway. And a couple calls Bobby was not pleased with, and a couple of players he also wasn't pleased with. And all of a sudden, he got up, and he... Just he he heaved that chair. I mean, he it was a good throw. It wasn't just like a little kick or a little toss. No, it was a nine point seven, and that thing clattered across the the. I mean, it was a noisy. I'm surprised it didn't rip up the court. It was it was a real throw, and all you're thinking at that time is, oh crud! It's deadline, and I think. The game suddenly is not important anymore. I think I have to rewrite the lead here that that I was going to have. That it was. And I don't even think at the time I realized how big a deal that it was. And needless to say, he did not come and talk to us after the game about that little incident. But that was Bobby. That was every game. You just didn't know what was going to happen. But you did see the chair. You see. You saw. I saw Bobby the chair. I, I definitely the chair. saw the chair. Oh, I saw the chair. It was like slow motion almost as that chair was skittering across the floor. It's like all time stopped. There was, you know, it became silent almost for a minute. It was, it was one of those, oh my God, what am I seeing? This is, and then the chair stopped and then the noise started and you're rewriting your lead, obviously. Did you end up writing two different stories or just one? I wrote a run, you, you know about writing running. Right. So I wrote a running story, which just had it as a lead and some, you know, game running crap on the bottom of Attack Down and then rewrote it with as many quotes or whatever, you know, reactions from people in the stands who, of course, thought Bobby had every right to throw the chair. And, yeah, the place was going bonkers, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
now you look back on it and you think, okay, if that happened today, they probably would have stormed the court. Mm. But it would have been an, it would have been an internet. If there had been internet back then, I think the internet would have broke. I mean, that at that moment. Yeah, I don't think the game. I don't. The game probably wasn't on television. I I think you're the first writer I've ever spoken to who actually was at that game. Was at the game? Yeah, it was a whole. That was part of the fun of writing sports back then, honestly, because you were actually describing things that most people had not seen live. Well, the Big Ten really came down hard on Bob. They gave him a whole one-game suspension. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm surprised he got that much at that at that time. Yeah, yeah. One of the IU seasons, they ended up going to the NIT. He had a bad year. And, and that, in that season, Bob quit talking to the media at all. After Christmas, it was um, Jim Cruz, his assistant, was he, was dispatched to talk to us after every game. And about midway through the season, he was the lame duck assistant because he was going to take the Evansville job. Which he did, yeah. Which he did. And IU didn't make the NCAA tournament that year. They went to the NIT and they made it to the New York. They got to the Final Four. And Bobby hadn't talked to us since Christmas to the local media. We get to New York. And everybody's there, the Lupicas of the world, all the big, and everybody. And he, the first, the press conference they had before the tournament, he sat there for two hours. And that was the sad thing. He could be so great when he talked to you. It was really good. He was so frustrating because he actually would have good things and interesting things to say, not just about basketball, but, you know, life in general. And he entertained them. For two hours, and every all these guys, the Lipicas, wrote these glowing col- columns about the great Bobby Knight and all these wonderful. And we're sit, us, us local, you know, beat writers are pulling our hair out mm. because he hadn't spoke to us since Christmas. Thanks, Bob. But did you ever have, did you ever have a one on one and a particular good conversation with Knight during your time as a beat reporter? One on one, no. The most would be. Sometimes in the middle of the week, he would talk to the three or four of us who were were there all the time. But no. Now, I want to ask you about this because we talked about the craziness of Bob Knight throwing a chair and you were there. You were also there at the Lily Hammer Olympics. By the way, were you there at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships in Detroit? In Detroit. Oh, at Cobo Arena, sure was. So you were there for the actual whacking. For the actual whacking. The funny thing, I had Jerry Longman had been the Enquirer Olympics writer till this, till shortly before this happened and he had taken the New York Times job. So I got the Olympics piece. So we're all, we were all in Detroit and we're in the media room at Cobo Arena and somebody comes running in and said, somebody just attacked Nancy Kerrigan and Jerry being a little bit of a smart ass said, I'll bet it was Tanya Harding. Ha ha ha. And we all laughed. And it turned out in effect, it was Tanya Harding. He was right. Uh-huh. He was right. So, again, that was another one of these, what? What do you mean attack? Like pushed her? Well, as, as the story kept coming out more and more, you keep thinking, no, this can't be real. You, if you wrote, if you made this up and tried to sell it as a TV show, they'd say, no, you know, this is a joke. No, this couldn't happen. Right. And this is 1994. It's really like the earliest days of the internet starting to creep into our lives. Um, but it wasn't like, it, yeah, it wasn't, you know, oh, tweet this out immediately. Right, you know, right. You were, there was no putting it out immediately. You had time to kind of 
try to report it out. And so this became your life, though, for several weeks on through the Olympic Games, which were like seven weeks later. So you were this enmeshed in this on a day-to-day basis. Yep. What do you recall being a journalist at the front line of that story? And it was, again, where newspapers had tons of resources. The Enquirer sent me out to Portland to, you know, to to write about where she came from, the trailer park, you know, Tanya, the trailer trash kind of story. You went to the trailer park? I went to the trailer park. I went to Portland, talked to people who went to the rink where she trained at, talked to people who knew her, you know, chain-smoking, heavy-drinking mom, went to try to track down the the, the family of her, you know, no-good, low-class husband. I mean, it was pretty much day and night for two months before and during the Olympics, it was all Tanya, 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 Nancy, 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 get to Lillehammer. Every minute of that Olympics was going to every single practice, every single moment that Tanya and Nancy, writing the first time Tanya and Nancy were on the ice at the practice rink together, how close did they skate to each other? Did they look <laughs> at each other? Did they, did they talk to each other? Tanya ended up getting coming late to the Olympics because they had to have a whole hearing whether she was going to be allowed to compete. That's right. And she was because technically she didn't, she claimed she didn't know that her, her fiance and his merry band of miscreants had actually whacked Nancy. So she ended up getting approval to go. So when she arrived in Norway, it was just a mess. It was unbelievable. Did you come to resent the story in the moment? Because I know you loved the Olympics and all of a sudden this became its own event. Or did you thrive on the idea of like, you're you're documenting this crazy story hour by hour, day by day? I think I enjoyed the story because it because you knew everybody home. That's all anybody wanted to know about. I mean, people actually did want to know. What was it like? This They would practice... You would get ice time at a practice rink at like three in the morning. That's where we'd all, I was lucky I had gone to Lillehammer, to Hamar, all of it early to do some stories for the Enquirer on the the games in Scandinavia and how big they were. And I had a car that I got to keep during the Olympics, which is unheard of. And we had a parking pass. Also unheard of at the Olympics. And it was great because to get to these two and 3 a.m. practices, the the bus system wouldn't take us there necessarily at that time. So I had this Volvo. I love this little Volvo. And it was like a clown car. We As many people as we could cram into the Volvo. How many riders can you shove into you a Volvo? In a Volvo? To drive over to the practice rink at Hamar and, you know, open it up and like eight of them would spill out with their, you know, everybody's winter coats and boots. <laughs> but we would go to the, because they said it, once the practice rink was full, however many was allowed by the fire department, whatever, then it would be shut. So if you weren't there really early, you wouldn't get in. So we were all there really early. Partly I was sad I wasn't seeing other events. Partly it was kind of a rush to be covering this story that everybody at home hung on every word that that you wrote about it. Right, right. Well, you mentioned uh, Louis Hammer. I, I hear from writers all the time of what a great Winter Olympics that was. I hear about Barcelona, 1992. Your, your work there, by the way, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. What is it about the Olympics when you look back? You covered seven of them. As a journalist, what did you find challenging and what did you enjoy? I enjoyed it because 
you got to tell stories that everybody in the world didn't already know. When you cover a Super Bowl or a World Series or, and I love the Final Four too, but you, when you do things like that, it's really hard to, to tell a lot of stories that aren't told already. You know, you're always looking for a different angle, but there's so many people covering it and, and it's hard to find things that everybody doesn't know about. With the Olympics and even, you know, I know it's not amateurism per se. And I, you know, I know there's a lot of bad things, stuff that, that's involved with it. But so many of the athletes, this is, it is their be all and end all. This one moment is so massively important to them. So Diane, when you reflect back on the Olympics, what story or moment that you were able to witness as a journalist still stays with you all these years later? It was Lillehammer again. The way that the Olympics happened, the um, speed skating followed figure skating in the same arena. So after Tanya Nancy was done, speed skaters took over. And it was Dan Jansen's last Olympics. And he had been the best speed skater in the world for over eight years. This was his third Olympics. He had Yet he had never won an Olympic medal. He had every world record in the 500 and the 1,000 meters. Mm-hmm. He won every other thing you could win. He had not medaled at the Olympics. He had falls, horrible falls. One Olympics, his sister, who ended up passing away, was battling leukemia, and he was just distraught over that. Horrible luck. So we come to this last Olympics, and again, he had the world record by a lot in the 500. The 500 meters was his best, and he skated the 1,000 also. So 500 is up first. He's going like gangbusters in the final turn, and he falls again. And the Norwegians adored speed skating, and they loved him. They weren't, they, they really, they got him. They loved him. They were rooting so hard for him. And he fell on that final turn and he threw his hands up and covered his head and there was dead silence in that arena and he skates off and everybody's devastated. I mean, we were devastated. He was a really good guy. Everybody loved him. Everybody knew his story. So the thousand meters was going to be a couple days after. And at first he said he wasn't, he wasn't going to skate it. He didn't think he could win the thousand anyway. And he was really upset. Well, his coach talked him into skating it. But he he didn't have great hopes. And the way that they um, skate, they skate in pairs and you're going by your best time previously at the Worlds or whatever. I don't exactly remember, but he didn't skate in the final pair because a thousand wasn't his best. He skated earlier in the, in the grouping and he skated probably the best he'd ever skated, the thousand, but you didn't know if his time was going to make it because all the best skaters came after him in the thousand. Right. Would it hold and up? We were, yeah. And would it hold up? Would it hold up? And it kept holding up and it kept holding up and it kept holding up. And right before the final pair went, Bill Glauber, who was a, a, a buddy of mine who covered the Olympics for the Baltimore Sun, he and I looked at each other and we decided we'd make our way around to where his wife and his baby who was named Jane after his dead sister. You're talking about Dan Jansen's wife and baby. Dan Jansen. Okay. His, his, Dan's wife and his little daughter, who was a baby. We go to the, go over to where they're sitting and we get there just about the time that the time holds up and, and the place erupts 
And he's, and when you win, you get to skate a lap with your flag and, you know, you get that whole moment. So he skates over to where his wife and the baby are in the stands and they have, he, he's gesturing well, they passed baby Jane down to him, and Bill and I got to hold baby Jane and pass baby Jane. <laughs> oh, you were holding the baby. <laughs> we were holding baby Jane and handing baby Jane to, to Dan as he— I mean, talk about getting close to a story. <laughs> yes, so he's he's got the flag and baby Jane, and he's skating. And, I mean, both of us were, like, balling like babies. Wow. <laughs> you just couldn't—and you're supposed to remain neutral now. And sometimes you just—the goosebump moments, I call them. And when you have a goosebump moment like that, it's really special. And, and again, describing that was special because people did not see it live. Right, they, right. They saw it eight hours later at night when it was on the, the, you know, the TV show that was produced by NBC. But people, they heard about it. What made it almost better is they heard about it, but they didn't see it. And you got to tell them. I mean, you got to tell them, hey, I'm holding the baby. <laughs> I'm holding baby Jane. J-A-Y-N-E. <laughs> Well, those are the kind of moments that make the Olympics so special, and uh, yeah. especially for a writer. And uh, I know how much you loved uh, covering the games, the same as I felt very fortunate to have had that yep. experience as a writer. Another sport you loved and covered a lot was tennis. And we haven't talked a lot of tennis on this show. What did you enjoy about covering tennis uh, during your time? Mostly it was the majors. So you didn't cover every tournament around the country, but the majors were two weeks and stories that you had no idea would be stories would gradually unfold over those two weeks. And you never knew necessarily what that story would be. Mm -hmm. So there was a surprise element. I, I, was, I first started covering it in Philly and I covered the first tournament that Pete Sampras ever won. And I remember because the, the tournament director, Marilyn Fernberger, pulled me aside before the tournament started and said, you have to pay attention to this Pete Sampras kid. You aren't going to believe how good he is. And Marilyn was a salesman and she, you know, was always prodding you to cover that Philly tournament. Right. So you took it kind of with a grain of salt, but then I saw him he, and he won that year. I think he was still only 18 and that was the first tournament he ever won. And then the next fall, it, this was in the winter indoors and he won the U.S. Open, but I was privileged. So I, what I grew up, I grew up in Borg and McEnroe and loved watching all of their battles. But I started covering it with Pete and Andre mm -hmm. and Michael Chang and Jim Courier. And Americans actually paid attention. And during the two weeks of these slams, just you, you never knew what was going to unfold, what drama there'd be, whether you'd be sitting in the U.S. Open interview room and Brooke Shields would be talking about Andre, and then you'd get a, a transcript of the Brooke Shields press conference at the U.S. <laughs> Wait, Open. I got a sidebar. Talking about Andre. <laughs> I think I actually think I did keep that. I think I still have that transcript. But. <laughs> well, seeing Sampras at a, such a young age, that's like seeing a band in a small bar before that band yeah. becomes huge. And he probably won that tournament in front of a couple thousand people and this gangly kind of skinny kid, but he hit that... When he hit the first serve, I saw him hit in person. The sound that his racket made hitting that ball, he's like, yeah, this is, this is pretty good. He might be a step above everybody else. 
I was at the John Isner and Nicholas Mahout longest match ever, 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 ever at Wimbledon. All right. Well, tell us about that one. When you're at a tennis tournament, obviously you cannot be at every match. So this started on, a t- I believe the match started on a Tuesday and it's John Isner and you weren't necessarily going to write about him in this early, his first round match against some French guy most of us hadn't heard of yet. And it, and, and it stopped because of darkness. Okay, no big deal. And you go back the next day and you, you're kind of keeping an eye on it, but you're covering other things that are better and more important. But this match keeps going on and you keep checking the score and it's still going on. And you go out and cover a couple other matches and come back and it's still going on. And it gets dark again and they still haven't finished. And so now it's become a kind of a big deal. And now the people in the office, even the ones who don't care about tennis and grumble that we're spending money covering Wimbledon are like all into it now. So I get back to the room that night and I'm told, this was in the very early days when papers were trying everything. And so we were supposed to blog constantly, blog everything, blog, 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 blog. It's kind of like blah, 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 when you think about it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what it read like. So that I'm told, okay, tomorrow we want you to blog every point. We want every, every point. point, you know, every <laughs> oh, point. The LA Times wants you to blog every point. Every point. Be- well, because what they had discovered was our internet traffic went up in the mornings in LA when people got to the office, people apparently would sneak onto their computers and follow stuff. So Wimbledon, because of the time difference, when got- people were getting to their office in LA in the morning, Wimbledon was going on still. And they knew that they get a lot of traffic at that time in the morning. So they wanted all the people in the office who were trying to sneakily see the results <laughs> to see what was happening. I mean, talk so about I'm writing blogging, a running story. You're writing every point. I'm writing, John Isner serves into the net. Second serve, eight. Ibid. <laughs> John Isner serves into the net. Second serve, return, net. It, this was what I wrote to it finally ended, by the time it ended and I had blogged every point of the third day, and then I had to write a story for the paper of like, who cares at this point? Well, you had I'm enough just notes, chronicled. that's for sure. <laughs> I had a lot of notes. <laughs> by the way, I forget, how many games did it go? Do you recall? It was, I believe, 71-68 in the fifth. Jeez. <laughs> and it, it changed the rule. It changed the rule. They, that was, they changed the rule after that. They changed the whole tiebreaker rule the two of them that basically it ruined the rest of the season for both of them they were literally so exhausted neither of them did anything the rest of the season but I would love to know if people actually sat in front of their computers waiting for my isner service winner Mahout return net it's amazing what papers were trying in those days. <laughs> and it was the most boring tennis because the two, all they did was serve and either hit a return winner or hit a return to the net. There were no rallies. There were no lovely, elegant, long, interesting points. It was like no, watching was, your neighbors play. Yeah. Serve net. Ace. Serve net. Return winner. So what was the press was, conference like? Neither of them had neither of them could put a coherent sentence together almost. Neither could you at this point. <laughs> and neither could we. And Isner had then he won, so he was gonna have to play another match the next day and he could barely drag himself out onto the court the next day and got pummeled by somebody. Neither of them even understood the the immense momentous 
occasion that that there is now a plaque on court 18 celebrating this match forever. Neither of them even grasped what they had done, I don't think. Well, like you said, you just didn't know what you're going to find in a two-week period of time, right? And you, you, you know, somebody that was not on my bingo card that year when I went to, <laughs> to Wimbledon. It, it wasn't. Besides Wimbledon, you covered the other three majors in tennis. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the U.S. Open in New York, this, uh, you know, this, this vast sea of cement. Uh, I never had the experience of covering the U.S. Open. How was that different than the other tennis majors? Most people say Wimbledon is their favorite. I loved the Open. I loved just the loud, body, crazy, noisy, everything about it, about the Open. Again, you never knew. I was there for the Connors-Aaron Crickstein match, the one where Connors comes back and wins, and he's yeah. thrusting his pelt at the— where, And they played forevermore. Whenever there was a rain delay at the Open until they finally got a roof, whenever there's a rain delay, they would put that match on. I've seen that match. Hundreds of times, I think. 1990, Jimmy 1991, when Connors made this unexpected run to the semis. He was thirty. He was thirty-nine, I believe. His, you know, supposed to be done, and he gets Aaron Crickstein on a Thursday night. It's a night match, of course. Deadline like crazy. He's playing the crowd to a T, and it drove John McEnroe crazy. Connors was a punk. He was not a very likable guy, but he sold himself as this gutty play his heart out. The fans loved him and they hated McEnroe, who was who he was. McEnroe didn't disguise who he was. McEnroe didn't try to hide who he was. Mm -hmm. And it drove him crazy that Jimmy was beloved and he was <laughs> hated. But anyway, so Jimmy is playing this to the to the hill. Poor uh, Jimmy Arias didn't have a chance in hell. And he had the crowd in his hand. But it was the theater was great. Yeah, it was theater, right? It was like you were covering it something was, It really was theater. So you're at night, the crowd is drunk and hepped up and crazed, and it's Jimmy, and it's, everybody knows this is his last stand, and the stands are shaken. Everything's shaken. They were, metal ble they were metal bleachers. You could hear the metal bleachers, people kicking, jumping. It was raucous, just beyond description almost, but it was unbelievable theater. What was it like in the press box? <laughs> that press box was scary because it was basically this metal, not very sturdy structure. And when the stands shook, so did the press box. When there were thunderstorms, the press box would sway in the wind. When the lightning was hitting, you're thinking, okay, if we get struck by lightning, we're dead. <laughs> Literally, that thing, these thunderstorms would roll in. It always seemed like, because it was always over Labor Day, and there'd always be one huge thunderstorm, and like summer would end and fall would come in this one moment. And you'd be in the press box, and the thing was swaying in the wind, <laughs> and you were praying that it didn't fall over. <laughs> you were just trying to think of a lead. <laughs> but you weren't, it wasn't enclosed, so you really were part of the atmosphere. I mean, you felt exactly what was happening in that stadium, and it was kind of cool. It made for rich writing. You know, I mean, you could you could write what it was like to actually experience it. There was a match, Pete Sampras, it was the quarterfinals and he got sick and he's throwing up on the court. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's wobbling and can barely stand up and he's heaving his guts out in the corner. And it was, yeah, the, the Open is a little special. Well, you were at the U.S. Open in 2001 and the Los Angeles Times had sent you 
on quite a road trip. I think you were gone for like 10 days. You started out covering a college football game at Penn State, and then you went to the second week of the U.S. Open. And I, I'm going to bring this up because you have written about this. This is 2001, and the L.A. Times asked you to stay an extra day to cover the Yankees-Red Sox on Monday. I'm going to let you take it from there. Yeah, they had called, I think, on on Sunday, the last day of the Open, my editor said, could you change your flight and come back Tuesday instead? Because Clemens was going for his 20th straight win, which was a big deal in and of itself. And he was going for that 20th straight win against the Yankees, even a bigger deal. So stay and do that game and come home Tuesday. So, okay, sure. My flight, because I had gotten assigned to this kind of late and by now, the gravy train was kind of over and we were always trying to save money. I flew a really crazy, I flew from LA through Boston to Islip, New York, because it saved like 2000 and some dollars on the fare. So my flight home was Islip, Boston, LA. So on Sunday night, when I, after they asked me, so I'm calling to change my flight back to LA on Tuesday, the 11th, instead of Monday, the 10th. And at first I was going to, I'm not a morning person. I never have been. It's just not me. And the only two flights were a 6 a.m. from Islip to Boston to L.A. or a 3 p.m. Islip, Boston, L.A. And I was hoping maybe they'd give me a break and they would let me switch it and go just from New York to L.A. But no, that was, no, you got to stay on the route. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to have to buy a whole new ticket. So, I said, okay, I'll take the 6 a.m. thinking, oh, then I'd be back in L.A. by noon, basically. And I, and so I got assigned, and I had tons of miles, and I said, can I upgrade? She said, yeah, upgraded seats are available. So I had seat 11B in business class. And after she gave me the seat, I'm thinking, oh, ma'am, if I, I'll, the day will be wasted anyway, and I'll be cranky, and I hate, I'll have no sleep, basically. By the time I get back from Yankee Stadium, it'll probably be two or three in the morning. And I, so I said, I hate to do this, but could you switch me to the afternoon flight to the 3 p.m., but only if the upgrade will still go through? And she changes it and said, oh, yeah, you can. St- it'll still go through, so I'll put you on the 3 p.m. flight. So, okay, so Monday comes, and it rains all day, all day, and the game is rained out. So I didn't see Roger Clemens go for his 20 20- that all didn't happen. And I, the next morning, so I tell Dan, I tell Dan, yeah, I could have taken the 6 a.m., but I'm on the 3 p.m. So, you know, call me at 11 or 12 or make sure I'm up. Or, so I go to bed. And my, I'm at the Grand Hyatt, which is the media hotel where the tennis always was. And <clears throat> I, the phone rings and Dan says, get up and turn on the TV. This is your husband, Dan, calling you from Los Angeles. Yes, calling from LA. So turn on the TV right now. So I turn it on and the first plane has already flown in, but nobody's exactly sure what has happened. And Dan said, this is unbelievable. So we're talking. And as we're talking, the craw goes on the bottom and it says, this this flight's believed to be American Flight 11. And that stuck in my mind because you don't often get a Flight 11 And I said, oh, wow, that was the flight I would have been on if I hadn't changed my ticket. And as we're saying this, the second plane goes in. And me being somewhat naive sometimes, like, oh, wow, this something's really bad with air traffic control. And Dan's screaming, this isn't air traffic control. This is way more than that. And 
the rest is kind of, it was way more than that. But it, had I not wanted to sleep in, this is one time it really worked in my favor because I would have been on American Flight 11 and flown into the tower. Instead, I was in New York for most of the rest of the week. So you were booked on seat 15B on flight 11? Yeah, on flight 11. And I would have been the row behind Muhammad Atta, it turned out. He would have. Oh, my. So 9-11 always, that week, anybody who ever says bad things about New York, I will always go crazy. The people in New York were unbelievable. Everything was there was no panic. There were all kinds of rumors, you know, oh, all the bridges and tunnels are going to be blocked. Nobody can, you know, they're going to, everybody was thinking more horrible stuff would happen. And all people did was go about the business of dealing. You could smell, you smelled death. I mean, you could, the smell of death was there. I grabbed, uh, I tried to, I was trying to call the office. It was hard to get a call through. I had had a limo that was going to be at the hotel to take me to the airport. Mm-hmm. And instead, I got him, I got as much cash as I could and asked him to get me as close as it would get me downtown and ended up talking to as many people as I could. And then going, we were being told that survivors were going to go to Bellevue Hospital and got there. And there were, it seemed like hundreds of doctors and nurses and emergency personnel waiting but they were waiting basically for not either you survived with kind of not horrific injuries or you didn't survive. And there was one girl and it's, I still see her face and she, she's talking on the phone to her mama. So that serv- people who were looking for loved ones were being given forms to fill out. And she was asking her mom, mom, did dad have any scars? They're asking if he has any, like, did he have any surgery? Where are the scars? Yes. I'm being, I, I need to put down exactly what, You know, did he have a tattoo? She was trying to describe her dad who was missing and who probably was dead. And it just, it, it, it sticks with me. It, that, that day is forever. And you, you wonder some, after it was over, I'm thinking, why was, why didn't I get on that flight? Was, you know, and why did other people get on the flight? And it was, the next year when I went back to the open and they had all the, the ceremonies and, you know, I was sitting in the stands weeping at the open as they bring out the flag. And I still watch everything. I watch every single thing they have each, each September 11th. I, I like, I feel like I, I owe the people who died to, to watch that over and over. Diane, you having a seat on that flight and then changing, do you, did you ever feel a sense of like a survivor's guilt? Yeah. Like why, why did some poor father with kids, you know, why did, why were kids, their dads never came home? I, I have Dan, I had Dan and I had our first client, but I didn't have kids. Why should I have not gone down? And yeah, often. You were in New York because you were covering sports. And you stayed, I think, until Saturday when you were able to get a flight out of Philly. First flight I could so get out of Philly. So you were writing Philly, about yeah. it. And because you're there as a sports writer, now you obviously shift and you're covering this, this huge event. Yet sports, 
you witnessed sports in New York, even in those first days, right? You were walking to Bellevue Hospital, and I think you you saw a pickup basketball game going on yep. down at 35th and 2nd Avenue. What were your thoughts about sports and how it fit into what you were experiencing in New York in those days? It was clear, the people that were out hitting tennis balls or shooting hoops, they needed some sort of sense of normalcy almost. It was like, okay, I need to get out of the house and not watch, you know, there was nothing on TV to watch but coverage of this. People needed to be out doing something that reminded them of being normal and sports was part of that. And there was a whole discussion you know, when should sports start up again? Should the NFL play? When should the NFL come back? When should MLB come back? And as I saw people out and about shooting hoops or playing tennis or kicking a soccer ball, I thought probably the sooner the better because it will give people a chance to be normal for a moment and to realize that everything's not horrible, as horrible as it it, it was in that moment. It's not forever going to be horrible. And it made me kind of feel good that that people were out doing that, that sports was able to ease tension, ease fears, just make the day feel a little normal, even if it's just for an hour or so. You went on to write about sports for another 13 years for the Los Angeles Times. Did your experience with 9-11 change how you wrote about sports? That's a good question. And I'm not Sure. By that that time, it was becoming more and more what I didn't like about sports writing at the end, that everything had to have, you know, the more clicks, the better, the more controversial you could make something, the more crazy you could make something. And I would think sometimes, God, it's almost like you wish, people seem to wish that, or bosses or editors or what, wish that there was a 9-11 every day because you get a lot of clicks. Mm. It seemed like there was less appreciation of the stories I loved doing, like at the Olympics with athletes that that just loved competing for competing. And it, it didn't have to be every sordid detail. of. And I know people are interested in what athlete is dating who. or It, it became, it's, and I don't know, I, I'm not doing it anymore, so I don't know if it's still that much, but pursuit of clicks became really discouraging. Mm. And I don't think as many good stories are being told because if you have what you think is a good story, but it doesn't have some sort of fancy, sexy something to it, there doesn't seem to be interest. And And that makes me sad because those are the stories I like reading. Yes, you have to talk about the salary negotiations or this or that, but it seems like sports was the one place where you could also tell good stories, and I don't see as many of them. That's that's why it makes me sad the New York Times is losing their sports section because their sports section told the stories that I loved to read right, right. more than any other paper, and I have a feeling that's not going to be the case anymore. Well, during the initial days of 9-11, when you were writing about what was going on in New York, um, you had to try to, in your own mind, figure out where sports fit in that moment. Um, Now, when you think about nearly 40 years as a sports writer, where did sports fit in your life? 
it was a major portion of my life. It it was the background. It was the background of my life. It was the rhythms of my life would be like summer would be marked into okay, the French Open, two weeks off, then it's Wimbledon, four weeks off, then it's the U.S. Open. Come home, it's college football time. A couple weeks after college football, as it's college basketball, my favorite time of the year. Many Thanksgivings and Christmas were spent on the road at holiday tournaments or football games. College basketball ends, Final Four, and then it's almost time for the French Open again. It was like that was, my life was divided into those kind of segments, and it was kind of cool. It was, right? Yeah, it was. It was the rhythm sort of, of our lives. Sort of France for a while. Yeah. You know, the, it was, it was, that was how I approached life, I think. Well, Diane, I, I feel this um, coming across in your voice, and I can, uh, I can relate. I'm out of the business now, and I think back on it, and I share your feelings. And I thank you for sharing your stories, particularly the, the story about 9-11. Um, I think it's important that we know what it was like to be a journalist in that moment, and I applaud you for sharing it. And I, ho- I, hope, I hope that people don't forget about 9-11, and I, I hope that kids today who weren't alive then will watch some of the 9-11 retrospectives every year and, and just watch and feel. Well, thank you so much for um, the retrospective about your many, many experiences as a sports writer. You're welcome. Very interesting to go through a, a lot of highs and lows and laughs and emotion. And that's kind of what sports is all about, right? <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. Good and bad. Diane, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And best of luck. Thank you. And say hi See to you. Dan. Bye. <laughs> I will. I will. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews, and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform, or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at hitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.